This is Works in Progress, a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. Jenna Caravello makes mind-bending video games, interactive installations, and animated short films that use symbolism and metaphor to ask profound questions about memory, loss, and meaning. Caravello is an assistant professor in the Department of Design Media Arts at UCLA, and she'll respond to the question, what is loss, as part of a discussion series called 10 Questions Reckoning, which brings UCLA faculty from across campus together to examine 10 essential questions. In this episode of Works in Progress, Caravello talks about creating digital avatars, storytelling in virtual spaces, and what inspires her from 90s video games and Akira to European and Soviet animators. But we start with her recent arrival to UCLA. It's a very strange time to begin at UCLA. Right now for this first quarter, I've been working with the grad students one-on-one. My only job really as a new assistant professor in the design media arts department has been to get to know the students and talk with them about their projects one-on-one and prepare for my winter classes. And what are you going to be teaching in the winter? I'll be teaching a class called Digital Vessel, Designing Avatars. And the students will design and rig and animate um, an avatar as part of a larger conversation about digital bodies. I like to think about avatars in so many different senses. Mm -hmm. The way that you can interact with video games as an avatar, puppetry, dance, storytelling, avatars are just pervasive in so many different types of art. Mm. And um, of course, spiritually and in religious practices as well. When you say avatar, are you talking about just like a representation of a character? What does that mean to say avatar? Yeah. So avatar has been defined as a picture that represents a computer user or a digital body controlled by a player, if we're talking about video games. We can call it a manifestation that represents a force of will Hmm. because the idea of avatar is so um, moldable to whatever you're talking about. Um, The word we use in English, avatar, comes from the Sanskrit word that means descent. Hmm. And in Hinduism, uh, I've read that the concept of an avatar is a deity manifested physically to kind of guide humans towards spirituality and enlightenment. But the way that we use avatars digitally is to represent ourselves, to maneuver in public spaces uh, remotely. So avatars have been the way that we define ourselves, the way that we identify ourselves in digital spaces for a while now, but they have this long reaching history And then you're teaching another class in the winter, and this one's about storytelling in virtual spaces? Yeah, so um, the class is based around speculating what kind of narratives we want to see in AR and VR. The sky's the limit because we won't be using the most expensive virtual software headsets. Mm. And we'll have a lot of conversations about the exclusivity of headsets and and how expensive they can be. And instead we'll use our phones a lot. What are some of the other challenges of like teaching right now in this way for you? I just really wish we could all get together physically. Mm -hmm. I was teaching at CalArts last year, but that was right before we went remote. 
so I, I didn't experience it. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we're not going to be able to jump to the computer and look over each other's shoulders, talk excitedly about something, interrupt each other, steer the conversation different ways with our physical gestures, that's so important. And um, teaching remotely is it's looking at a gallery of faces. It's just, it's going to be, it's going to be different. So one of the things that I noticed about your animation is how you change perspectives. So like in um, your recent short Frontier Wisdom, you switch between first person sort of like active player situation and then third person where you're just like watching the protagonist as she goes about. And I wonder how that's different, how you think about perspective differently when you're working in virtual space because you're kind of stuck in first person perspective, right? Like you're seeing the world only from your vantage point. You're a little bit more constrained in terms of being able to play with perspective in the virtual space. Is that right? Yeah. When when you're able to actually change your perspective, moving from first person perspective to third person perspective, in terms of interactive media, it's about identifying with your main character. When you're in first person perspective, an avatar that you are playing as, it's it's you you can say, I am walking through a space. When it's in third person perspective, you can refer to the character and and say, she's walking through the space. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about that while I was making um, Frontier Wisdom, which is a single channel animation and was very much inspired by that kind of relationship that you have to video game characters. But it was important to me that my main character in Frontier Wisdom could function that way as well. I was making a statement both about myself and about what it is to feel the way that I felt making that film. I was so lost at the time that I made it, and I was hoping to connect with other people who feel lost in an abstracted loop of of mourning. What was it that made you feel that way? Um, So... I made Frontier Wisdom just as I was moving from Chicago to Los Angeles, and I was really confused about what my future would bring. And it happened to be my father who I went on a road trip with (laughs) from the Midwest to to Los Angeles. And that brings up all kinds of deep-seated feelings where, you know, I was relating to him. Here was this person who I thought I knew so well. Um, He was delivering me to my future. The idea of relating to my father really brought up a lot of images. And and the first image really was that I wanted him to kind of inhabit my perspective. And so that's why Frontier Wisdom actually begins with a first person perspective. And tell me about your dad, because there are some other similarities between the main character, which is a phone repair woman, and your dad, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So the thing is, I I don't know what my dad did. (laughs) He worked for PacBell, which was a phone company in Los Angeles. And he would leave the house and he would drive around town in a very, in a strange van that was full of cables. And it was just very mysterious to me. He would disappear and then he'd come back at night. And I could never really wrap my head around what he did all day. So I started to imagine that he was going on these adventures, that he was a protagonist in some noir 
mystery out there in the <laughs> desert somewhere. And I think that that projection, I've never let go of it. It's always been defining of my experience of my father that I couldn't really understand what he did. I projected so much onto him as a character. And so that's why I think over time, I just started to really identify with, with him as, as a fictionalized character. And that's, that's where the main character of Frontier Wisdom comes from. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, I guess her name is Georgia. And in <laughs> the movie, she, um, she finds a broken payphone and then before long, it starts to get very kind of surreal and kind of trippy. Mm-hmm. And um, it becomes sort of less narrative focused, I feel like. And it's more just about like interesting visuals and it becomes slightly, yeah, like I said, surreal, a little bit absurd um, and very symbolic. Mm-hmm. What were you sort of hoping that the viewer like takes from this? Like what kind of experience are you hoping people have as they watch this? It's an interesting question to ask of an atmospheric kind of abstracted narrative, what you hope people will take from it. Because what you hope is that you've communicated some kind of deep longing or some kind of visual narrative connection that can't otherwise be narrated in words or or in text. And so I think that in making a single channel animation that unravels visually, narratively, my goal is to break apart some symbology and to break apart some images and to find meaning and make connections in a way that you can't really do in in telling. So those images that I really want people to come away with uh, in Frontier Wisdom, but also in most of my work, is the idea that a space can be a container for memory. A large, endless desert can be as familiar and close as a as a single living room if you've spent enough time there and that's that's the magic of film right that you can you can set your film anywhere and it'll still be deeply personal and deeply familiar mm-hmm. for me the mojave desert in that film is very similar to an open world massive multiplayer online game some just an expansive kind of realm of play and for things to happen in this expansive realm what i'm trying to say is that your memories kind of flit in and out of this this space that represents your own mind palace your own mind container i'm interested in mind spaces in the idea of the mind palace which is a technique for memorizing things. The idea is that you can build a series of rooms in your mind and place bits of information in those rooms and then visit the rooms in order to remember the thing that you have placed there. And I think that you can do the same with a Mojave Desert. And so the symbology becomes what kind of mind palace can you project your memories onto? So you're one of the animators on a really amazing documentary that came out this year called Feels Good Man that is ostensibly about Pepe the Frog, um, who is this very nice, friendly frog cartoon character created by this uh, illustrator, Matt Fury. And the film tracks how 
Pepe sort of became co-opted by the alt-right and by white supremacists. And Matt Fury is very bummed out about this. And then the film follows him as he tries to reclaim Pepe from the right. And you were one of the animators. And so as the film goes on, you see these animated sequences of Pepe and his friends, and it sort of reacts to the developments in the movie. Um, but they're really fun and very trippy, kind of psychedelic. What was it like working on that movie? Yeah, the film is directed by Arthur Jones and produced by Giorgio Angelini. And we shared so many tears <laughs> over this film. It's funny because Matt Fury, actually, he would go back and forth on whether he wanted the film to kind of exist or not. He's really just a very special and strange guy who's just, he doesn't want to talk about politics. He doesn't want any of this to happen. And so the, the project was motivated by his friends and Arthur Jones being one of them. And it was motivated by this kind of tidal wave of internet culture that was so out of his control. And in a way that the film became its own tidal wave that was, you know, a little bit out of his control. And so I think that as the animators, our main goal was to speak to Matt's art and to be this kind of voice for, for Matt's comics in a way that would bring his work to the forefront. That was just really important to us and to the filmmaker. Um, so most of our conversations were always about, you know, well, what would Matt do? <laughs> Will Matt laugh at that? Will Matt, you know, is that accurate to what Matt would want to happen to his characters? We didn't go to Matt for every decision, so we had to project a little bit. He did help with some of the storyboarding. There's a scene that I animated that we called Garbage World, where Matt Fury is talking about how unfortunate consumer culture is, and it takes over any other kind of interaction you can have with people, with, with the world, with objects, and he just calls it garbage world. Mm -hmm. we, live, we live in a world of buying and garbage. People would just email me fucked up pictures of Pepe, oh my God, and so it didn't really shock me. I would be more shocked by, you know, people actually expressing some form of cuteness or love. Like, this other stuff is just, it's just garbage. I think a weird thing about American culture in general is like we do kind of celebrate garbage and we also produce a hell of a lot of physical garbage so it's just like fucking garbage world and he he storyboarded that that sequence um we worked for a really long time on the intro sequence to that and I worked alongside my good friend Kylan Woodrow on the intro sequence where we had this narrative that Pepe and his friends would be hanging out, everything would be quite fun, just a couple stoners eating pizza, <laughs> um, just the way that the comics are, you know. And mm -hmm. we read those comics when we were younger. Like, I remember buying a copy of Feels Good Man from a cardboard box outside Family Books when I was 16 or something, and here we were animating it. It was just a crazy feeling. Because Pepe was one of, like, four characters in a, a comic book series called Boys Club, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where he came from originally. He had no political affiliation at all. 
But given how much Pepe had become this character that the alt-right that users on 4chan like to use what was it like to like animate him over and over again and to be like looking <laughs> at his face for months some of us got pepe tattoos oh really <laughs> i did i didn't but um but some of us did i i love internet culture <laughs> uh-huh. i love reddit uh i love 4chan i can't get enough of it and a lot of us felt the same way so you know we were drawing Pepe anyway. (laughs) In a lot of ways, we just, we felt that it was funny. It was funny. It was serious. It was everything under the sun that it could be because Pepe had come to mean everything to everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. Now people who use Pepe, I think the greater Pepe user population is on Twitch. They're all, they're all gamers. Yeah. They're all gamers. And um, he's he's like a sticker react that you can use on Twitch in the chat. And yeah, anyone who uses Pepe in Twitch would say that they had no idea that he had any kind of ties to um, Nazism or, or right wing fascism or, or just any any of that um, or that he was a negative meme at all a lot of people would just say like oh he's a happy frog and i love him and it's funny the way that he can change so quickly Mm -hmm. the the way that an entire population of users can use him and and say oh i didn't know what he used to be but referring to what he used to be they're talking about you know six months ago and four years ago that's that's not (laughs) that's not a lot of time that's not a bygone era yeah, the meme time and like the the time of like viral videos and viral ideas happen so fast that that it it's it seems like Pepe is already in a stage of like being reclaimed now. Yeah, he keeps getting reclaimed just over and over again. Um, <laughs> he takes on new meaning no matter what platform he's on. Um, the way that he had manifested for people in Hong Kong was he was someone had drawn him as a sticker on some chat platform, but they were using his face as a sticker and it wasn't even Matt's own drawings. Uh, it was Pepe traced over and then um, redrawn in, in different kinds of ways where he actually doesn't really look very much like an American Pepe. He looks like mm-hmm. a different Pepe, but that's how Pepe became popular in Hong Kong was um, completely divorced from how he's used here. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's really an incredible story. My professional life uh, since undergrad had always been to um, make animations for documentaries, mostly motion graphics, designing Ken Burns style motion tweens over documents. And I worked on Life Itself, the documentary about Roger Ebert by Steve James. And I also worked on another documentary called Almost There by Dan Rybicki and Aaron Wickenden. And the funny thing is that I... I had enough of working on other people's projects. I wanted to focus on my own work, and that's why I moved to Los Angeles um, and left Chicago behind. Um, I had to make this decision that I I didn't want to start my own motion graphics company in Chicago. I wanted to focus on interactive installation and animation. And it's funny that the very first thing that I did when I moved to Los Angeles was I started working on, I started working on feels good, man. 
I feel like that style of animation, like how did that become so prevalent? It's almost like the like alt comedy became like mainstream comedy, you know? Mm. Are there like shows that you think people grew up on? Like, was it The Simpsons? Was it Ren and Stimpy? Like, like Sesame Street had some very um, psychedelic animation in the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah, we've got so many generations now that were raised on animation and, and raised on having access to animation anytime they want it with YouTube. The idea of animation for, for children is something that is prevalent in TV culture, but people have been making experimental and strange animations for such a long time. That's, you could argue that cinema began as animation. Cinema is animation. Mm -hmm. And people have been enjoying experimental animation for a really long time. But there's probably also a younger generation who, you know, maybe watched Adult Swim, but they might have completely different um, animation references mm -hmm. than our generation or a generation above us, too. I mean, have you found that in the past with students that are of a different generation, that their stuff just looks different because they grew up on more advanced animation software or something? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the prevalence of... Cintiqs um, of drawing tablets has really changed the way that people expect animation to look. Um, younger generation animators are looking at YouTube. They're seeing animation that has clean lines and vectors. The look of that is characteristic of drawing tablets. Whereas when I was younger, the look of animation, it was a lot more painterly. It had lines left behind from erased pencil. Now you have something that's a lot cleaner, but that's not to say that that in and of itself is a style. You also have, you know, line thickness, things like the shapes of heads, the shapes of eyes that go in and out of style, if you can believe that. Uh -huh. Interesting. Um, telling stories is, is actually is changing as well. Um, you've got shorter animations. You've got animations that are acclimated for, for Instagram. The, the platforms change the structure of, of animation as we know it. Um, are there things that you grew up on that you think have shaped the way you draw? Like, can you point to any kind of media that you consumed that has formed your animation style? Oh, yeah. Even though I started as an oil painter, my inspiration has always come from video games. And even when I began animating, my, my inspiration was always from video games. I was looking at old pixelated point-and-click video games and um, games by LucasArts, like Grim Fandango. And the idea of characters walking around in spaces, discovering things, it really shifted the way that I portrayed protagonists, the way that I portrayed my subject matter, the way that I looked at spaces. And so, yeah, I would, I would always point to video games as my first inspiration, no matter what I was doing. But when it comes to animators, yeah, I, I especially am in, inspired by Prit Parn, who was just an immensely creative storyteller. Um, he was an Estonian animator whose films are part political allegory, um, part just reveling in ridiculousness. He made a film called Night of the Carrots, that changed the way that I worked forever. I highly recommend it. Hmm. There are so many incredible, amazing animators. Um, more recently, I've been inspired by interactive 
installation folks like um, Kim Lawton, who makes these little bite-sized executables. They're not quite video games. They're more like interactive installations for your private computer. Or uh, Akihiko Taniguchi, who experiments with avatars and interactive media. But yeah, I, when I was younger, I think that the most influential animators to me were always Eastern European animators like Pritparn or like uh, Igor Kovalyov. Their style was frenetic and the lines were sketchy and the subjects would run in and out of spaces and everything was metaphorical. I just, I can draw a lot of lines between what they did and, and what I do now. I was definitely inspired by more textural animations that for the most part were metaphors for political movements, for consumer culture, ridiculousness, abstracted character designs. Yeah, the, the Eastern European style is, is definitely something I can point to. What about anime? <laughs> I love anime. <laughs> <laughs> anime is very, very important to me. Um, the first time I saw Akira, my little mind exploded. I think that being young and watching a film like Akira is especially influential because if you can't really keep up with the subtitles, the visuals just wash over you. And um, the story is very complicated to begin with. So I just let Akira and the visuals just wash over me when I was a lot younger. And that kind of maximalist dystopian future was absolutely the the most incredible thing. I wish I wish I could <laughs> I wish I wish I could replicate that myself. You'd mentioned that you're also interested in interactive installations. Um, and there are a couple that you're working on right now mm. that I was hoping you'd talk about. One is called Amber Row. Yeah. Amber Row is a third person open world game for VR. Conceptually, it's a project that attempts to correlate building an inventory in video games to the manner in which I've learned to curate my memories. Um, ever since I was diagnosed with the same genetic mutation that led to my mother's death. When I first started working on Amber Row, I sat down having a lot of complaints about VR. <laughs> I didn't like the way that when you interact with VR, you're kind of performing for anyone who's watching you. So I made my mind up that I wanted Amber Row to be experienced um, alone, sitting down with a controller, um, and inside of the game you are able to run around freely in this open world that's based on the idea of um, an MMO that is kept alive on a single server. Um, the idea of this world that has broken down and now serves as a container for all of the memories that are left behind from a person who is no longer present. And this is how I explored the idea of collecting memories after my mother passed away, because it really can feel like a futile practice to run in circles after experiencing a loss and um, try to recreate memories of a person from everything that they've left behind. 
and uh, that's what the mechanic of Amber Rowe was based around, that you collect objects and that in collecting these objects, you distort the world around you and you distort your own avatar's mesh. I was inspired by, there's, there's an early Tomb Raider game <laughs> that my father used to play and he would defeat all of the bad guys on a level and then he'd call me into the room and he'd let me just run around in the level freely, um, clear of enemies, nothing to do but just run around in circles and jump and dive and swim and just be this character in a space. And I really wanted to experience that in VR. But what it's about is the way it felt to um, collect disparate memories after someone is gone. And so loss is a major theme, and that seems to also be a, a part of this other installation, Canto 9. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really like to think about Dante and um, his portrayal of angels. In Paradiso and Purgatorio, Dante describes these creatures that are so radiant and unearthly that they're horrific, and you have to look away but they're like a race of creatures that have no free will and they're like a window into the radiance of God. But what's stuck with me was this thought of they're holy and they're radiant and they're related to God. They're like these avatars for God, but they have no free will. <laughs> mm -hmm. That really is the relationship between player and avatar. And so Canto 9 is the very first canto in Dante's Inferno that portrays an angel who really just almost frustratedly comes through hell and opens a gate and that's all that they do. And it's funny because the way that the angel acts towards Dante is as if he's this frustrating inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> and if the angel is an avatar for God, I love the idea that God at that moment could have been frustrated with Dante <laughs> mm -hmm. and that, that Dante is the one who's writing this. And it was a wonderful connection for me, this avatar for God kind of treating Dante like he was an obnoxious neighbor who was making too much noise. And I think that at that point, Dante hadn't, I mean, I'm projecting here, I don't know this, but it seems the way he describes that very first angel that he hadn't quite made up his mind about what he wanted angels to be like because later in Paradiso and Purgatorio Dante really describes the angels and how they act and you know the differences between the hierarchy of, of angels but this very first one is kind of nondescript <laughs> um, and so I took that idea of, of the nondescript angel avatar of God, and I wanted to explore how that feels to play God to an avatar. And so Canto 9 is this um, two-channel interactive piece that involves using a keyboard to um, type messages to an angel avatar whose physics are connected to what you're typing to him. If you type positive sentiments to the angel, he kind of gains solidity. And if you type negative 
sentiments to the angel, his physics really start to break apart. Um, and if you switch back and forth between nice things and mean things, uh, the mesh of the angel really gets horribly tangled. And um, it's fun to play with. My my goal in making that aspect of, of Canto 9 is that I wanted to surprise myself. And, and it really does. <laughs> it surprises me kind of what you can do to, to torture this, this angel avatar. And the second channel of Canto 9 involves playing a single avatar as if it was an action figure on a table. Um, you uh -huh. can use your keyboard to um, swing its arms and swing its head and you're fighting with another angel and it just is futile and lonely <laughs> and senseless violence between two avatars that don't feel anything. And I think that the effect of looking at both parts of Kanto 9 is that you really do feel quite alone in interacting with these avatars that have no will. And so in that way, it's a, it's a reflection on Dante's angels and the relationship between God and angels. And I just think it's fun to play God. <laughs> <laughs> That's Jenna Caravello. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Design Media Arts at UCLA. On Monday, November 23rd at 7 p.m., she'll be responding to the question, what is loss, in this fall's 10 Questions event series. Joining her will be oncology chaplain Michael Esselin and anthropologist Georgia Leap, who's an expert in gangs, violence, and systems change. You can learn more at RSVP at arts.ucla.edu slash 10 questions. Follow us on social media at UCLA Arts. And if you like this show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It'll help other people find us. This podcast is a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. Our music is composed by Austin Danson. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.